Last Sunday, I talked through Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And today, I'd like to continue in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 3. And while this might not sound outright like an Advent or a Christmas-themed message, I think we'll still find it in there. And so if you have your Bibles, if you have your Bibles on your phone, on your device, or even if you go to wovenchurch.org slash news, you will see a link there, at the, uh, right there for our announcements. You'll see a link that will take you directly to our passage for today. Ephesians chapter 3 is where we are going to camp the first 13 verses of this chapter. Like last Sunday, these words are long, they're a little bit blustery, but in the midst of them there is a payload. And here's a cue, a a literary cue. When you read Paul, especially in the book of Ephesians, he's a little bit difficult to follow, but in the midst of it all, look for the payload. If you remember, I I told you about the payload. Look for the value. Look for essentially what he's trying to say. Last week, the payload was in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. I would go so far as to say that payload is even maybe the payload of all of Paul's thought, central to his thought. Verse 10 in chapter 1 of Ephesians says, Christ is about the summing up of all things. He sums up everything in heaven and on earth. All things are summed up in him. Today, we're going to take this thought and extrapolate it. In chapter 3, it says, This mystery, this mystery that we've been talking about the last week, the last two weeks, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. And I'm going to unpack what this means, this important, this payload statement here. The mystery is that the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. And what I'm going to talk about are two, are in two headings, if you look in your notes. The first half of our talk today is mystery. I'm going to identify this mystery a little bit more clearly. Paul talks all throughout Ephesians about this mystery, mystery, what is this great mystery? I want to identify that mystery, first of all. And our second heading is ministry. So the first half is mystery, and the second half is ministry. Um, I've been telling you in this season that I've been burning through the Harry Potter books, and I love uh, this title. The title of today's sermon is Ministry of the Mystery. It sounds like something that J.K. Rowling would come up with, uh, however you feel about those books, you know. Um, ministry of the mystery is what we're talking about. We are ministers of the mystery. What is the mystery? What is the ministry? Let's dive right in with Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. Look with me, if you will. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, and he clarifies, who is Paul writing to? Is he writing to Jews? Is he writing to Christians? No, he clarifies. He says, for the sake of of you Gentiles, non-Jews, I, Paul, a prisoner, I'm in prison, for the sake of you, my audience, the Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me on your behalf, that by revelation there was made known to me this mystery. There's that word, mystery. What is this mystery that he's talking about? 
And he clarifies this mystery. I wrote about it before in brief, two chapters ago, in fact. I referred to it in chapter 1, this mystery. In fact, in verse 4, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. In other words, in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of Jewish history, they didn't know this. They didn't know this mystery. But now in this opportune time, you would call it a a, a kairos moment, right? In this opportune time, to your generation, this mystery has now been revealed through the apostles and prophets in the Spirit. You get in on this mystery. All the generations before didn't know this, but you get to know it. What is this mystery? And then you have the payload right there, as I said in verse 6, the clarifying statement, to be specific. I'm clarifying here, this is the mystery, that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise. What in the world does that mean? The Gentiles, the non-Jews, together with us Jews, get to partake and get to be members of this body. And it's a big deal for him to say that because back then, like today, they had racially charged language, racial epithets. In fact, when they would say you were an uncircumcised Philistine or these Gentile dogs, It was a way of saying something derogatory, pejorative. But now what Paul is saying is those uncircumcised Philistines, the Gentile dogs who sit in the outer courts, get to come in and be part of this big new project that is the kingdom of God. That's the mystery. That's the beautiful message. Let me illustrate what this kind of feels like. Um, a year ago, about a year ago at this time, I was invited to my first bar mitzvah ever. And you'd think growing up in Queens, New York, I would have been to a couple of these. Um, This was my first. Actually, the friend who invited me was from Queens, and he lives here in Houston. And so he invited me to his son's bar mitzvah, and I was like a kid in a candy shop. I mean, maybe I'm a nerd, but I was, I loved it. And you know, they sing praises too. They sing to Yahweh. They sing praises. It's, it's kind of like us. They sing their praises, and I'm trying to join along, and I'm trying to practice my Hebrew, and a 13-year-old is out Hebrewing me, and he's reading, and he's reading, and I'm trying to get my Hebrew on, and I'm praying with them as they pray, and they're rocking, even as a Gentile dog sitting in the outer courts. I'm praying together with them and saying, man, I wish I was Jewish. Man, I wish I had my yarmulke. The funny thing is, I don't know if he told, my friend told his rabbi, my friend is coming. I don't know if you can tell he's not Jewish. I don't know if he told his rabbi, my friend is a pastor. Because the rabbi looked at me a little suspiciously. And I was like, I hope I'm not offending him by even being here. You know, the thing about the Jewish culture is, the Romans and the Greeks, they had a little bit of a Jewish fetish, if I could call it that. They were really interested in the Jews. There was this push and this pull dynamic. On the one hand, the Greco-Romans, the pagan world, 
was drawn to the light of Judaism. They were drawn to it, but at the same time, the Jews at that time were so repulsive. They had this way of being uh, misfits. What's the word? Um, misanthropes. They just had a way of rejecting the world and rejecting everybody. And everybody, when you, you know, you, when you push somebody away, they kind of start doing this a little bit more to you. Like, tell us what you, what's so important and what's so special about you. Well, we just so happen to have the oldest religion in the world. We lay claim to antiquity. What is so important about you that your religion? Well, we believe in one God. The whole world believes in many gods. The Jews believed in one God. Huh, that's interesting. We believe in ethical monotheism. It's not just one God who's up sipping a Mai Tai in like some paradise somewhere. No, he's involved. He condescends. He brings his worldview, his ethics, and gives it to us, to humanity. Throughout all of the ages, the world has seen really the value, the value, the light to the nations that Judaism is. I stand firmly in my love for the Jewish culture, that even though I will never really be accepted into the inner courts, even though I will never be allowed to dance around and say, lie, 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 and get to step on my glass and get candy thrown at me, I will never get to have that experience. But here's the thing, listen to the message that Paul says in verse 6. By the way, I didn't finish reading that. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise. Listen to this. In Christ Jesus, through the gospel, you hear how two little words, two prepositions, in, through, give us access way. Without Christ, nothing. No hope. Is anybody Jewish here has Jewish blood? There is no way in. And the tremendous mystery of the gospel is that we have access. We have access in, through. Two words right there. I love how you had us start off meditating, thinking about somebody who's alone. And I, I really want to ride this, this, this vibe of solitary and people who are alone this, this holiday season. But meditate on this as well, that in, through, we get to go in. If you're stuck in traffic this week, just say to myself, in Christ, through the gospel, I get to be in. Let me tell you a fun story. My wife loves my dog, loves our dog. We have a weird-looking, like, Scooby-Doo. She's got really droopy ears, and she's, a, she's, she's kind of a, a goofy dog. And the thing about this dog, I want to tell you this kind of long story, but it's a fun story, and it has a point. Um, this is our second dog, by the way. The thing about this dog is when we first saw her at PetSmart, we completely passed her over in favor for her brother, this picture-perfect, calendar-worthy yellow Labrador puppy. And here was the dog that we own now, and here's this Labrador puppy, yellow lab, named Bilbo. Bilbo. I mean, this dog was destined for me. And so me and my son, after Fleur, our Jack Russell Terrier, died, our first dog died, we went over to PetSmart, and there is my dog that I have now, Bailey, but we... <laughs> 
poor thing. She, she was sitting there. She was four months old, and she looked like she was the saddest, most forlorn, alone thing on the Christmas holidays, all alone. And we looked at her, and we said, oh, okay. And then we, we said, but we want to see Bilbo. And so they took Bilbo out, and he was licking us and everything, and we're like, this is our dog, this is our dog, but we have to ask Mom and Zoe first. So we go home. PetSmart closes, and we say, Mom and Zoe, we got to go back to PetSmart on Sunday after church, so hurry up and get through the sermon, Dad, and let's finish church, and let's go back to PetSmart and see Bilbo and pick him up and take him home. And so we got through church that Sunday, and we, we raced over to PetSmart with, with, with the whole family, and we completely bypassed Bailey's cage and saw Bilbo was gone. Somebody had snatched Bilbo up in the intervening time, and he was no longer there, no dog, and we were sad. What's that? So we looked over at this little funny red, red Vishla lab mix with droopy ears and kind of looking really, really sad. And we said, well, what's she about? Well, let's take a look at her. If I was a dog and I was under those harsh department store lights with people talking constantly, I would be really, really sad. I would feel alone at Christmas. So we took Bailey out, and she kind of sheepishly just kind of curled up and just leaned into my wife. And then my wife went, oh, like that. And to this day, my dog is attached to my wife because my wife chose her and called her out of darkness into the glorious light. Bailey was not our first choice, but the mystery of the gospel is she was adopted. You know, Vishalas, they call them Velcro dogs, Velcro dogs. This dog is literally stuck to my wife's side. Let me tell you another funny story. The dog we had before the dog we had before Bailey was a Jack Russell Terrier named Fleur. When I picked up Fleur, I remember in 2003 or something like that, there was a litter of Jack Russell Terriers, maybe eight to ten of them, running around insane in somebody's backyard. And I basically snatched her and removed her and separated her from her family. And I think for the rest of her life, that ungrateful dog, God rest her soul, as much as she loved us, never really felt like she was rescued. She already had a sense of belonging. I took her away from her family. But then I had this, we have this other dog who had no family, no place in the world, no hope, no gospel. But in Christ Jesus, through the gospel and through the Park family, she found her belonging. Do you hear the gospel message? The mystery, and this is what gets Paul hopping excited in Ephesians, is that can you get this? All of you are like Bailey. And all of you get to be part of the family now. So everybody stand up and start dancing. Or la, 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 la. You know what I mean? And this is an amazing mystery. This is the mystery. Friends, in the years of my Christian life, as I've gone up and down, as I've, as I've grown, you know, with fits and starts, as my faith has gone like this and like this and like this, the thing that has drawn me back continually is this message that I could belong. That I could belong to the family of God. That I am loved, chosen, called out of darkness and metal crate cages. So Paul is really big on this mystery. 
Let it not be understated. But the mystery has a ministry. And this is the second half of today's talk. The mystery has a ministry. Or maybe you could say the ministry has a mystery. But let's look at the ministry. The ministry piece of this, the, the mystery of the ministry, or the ministry of the, the ministry, the second half. So all of this, this mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers in and through Christ Jesus, and it continues in verse 7, of which, this mystery in verse 7, of which I was made a minister. Now this word, minister, and that phrase has gripped me these last three, four weeks, this past month. I've kept it open on my Holy Bible app, on my phone, and I've meditated on these words, in particular, verse 7, of which I was made a minister. So there's this mysterious gospel that us Gentiles, those of us who are non-Jews, really the multi-ethnic church, gets to be part. And what does it mean for me, what does it mean for me to be a minister of this mystery? I shared last Sunday and I hope it didn't put any of you off. I shared that for me personally, I have never felt a call, quote unquote, whatever that looks like, burning bush, I've never felt a call to full-time vocational Christian ministry. And I don't want you to you know, doubt, you know, should he be up there. The point that I'm making is, if there was one thing I felt a call unequivocally, that can never change, that nobody can take it away from me, 100%, I know without a doubt, that in 1996, 1997, Jesus called me to follow him. He called me to be a disciple. And that call, what I do know at that time, it even appended with it, appended with it, was even the call to leave home, to go 3,000 miles away from the East Coast to the West Coast. So I took that call very seriously, because I didn't want to leave home. I didn't want to leave Queens, New York. What had become for me, a big city had become a very small town. I didn't want to leave. And yet, and yet, and yet, Christ bid me follow. Follow me, Wayne. And I left New York and I went across country and that, that's the rest of my life. But in the midst of that, I'm here now, 42 years old, wondering, by the way, I ended up in pastoral ministry. Did I miss a memo somewhere? Did I miss the memo? When I was called to follow Jesus, I could have done anything. I could have been a surfer, dude, or I could have been an airline pilot, or I could have climbed redwood trees for a living. How did I end up preaching for a living? How did I end up in pastoral ministry? And you might say, maybe Pastor Wayne is having a midlife crisis. And I would say, it's good to have a midlife crisis every now and then. Peter says this in 3 Peter chapter 6. It's good every now and then to have a midlife crisis. That's not what he says. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, Make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Search it out. It's a good thing. I'm not saying question you. Question yourself. I'm not saying lose confidence. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying, know why you are here. It's like that great, great biblical uh, television series, Lost. Why am I on this island? Why am I stuck on this island? What is the purpose and the meaning of it? Search out, as Peter says, your calling and election. Search out. I love what, what, what you're talking about this morning, Judith. Um, identity. What was it again? 
Identity, equipping, and unleashing. What was the first one? Inspire, equip, and unleash. I love that. Because we have a whole multitude of young people who have no idea who they are. Simba, you are my son. You know, they need, they need that moment. They need a cloud to appear and say, you are my beloved. But they don't know who they are, and so they wander around in life making the same mistakes that their parents make. Who are you? And so, once again, we get back to this question of identity. Make every effort to confirm. And so, as I wrestle, for me personally, with my own midlife crisis or my own calling, and who am I, I've fallen on verse 7, and it's been so comforting, friends. What verse 7, it says, This great mystery, which I am a keeper, and you are as well, I was made minister. I was made a diakonos is the word. Diakonos is where we get the word deacon from. And that comforts me because whether I'm in the front waving my hands, because we, we talked about this through Life Together, the, the Bonifer series. Sometimes for leaders of community, there's so much ego involved and attached to it. I want to separate myself from that. I, 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 I want to Purify myself from that, that false, the false motives of why, you know, why did I get into ministry then is the question, right? Now, this is not just me making a confessional. This is going to connect back to all of you in a moment. So as I wrestle, why did I? There's the answer in verse 7, of which I became a servant. I became a servant of this mystery, a diakonos, a servant. Okay. And so for me, I've been learning these days, what does it mean to be a servant of this mystery? What does it mean to be a servant of the people here at Woven? What does it mean to be a servant of this church? What does it mean to be a servant? By the way, I think there's a difference between being a servant and a savior. And that's something that you're just going to have to be in ministry to understand. I'm called to be a servant, not a savior. And we're called to serve, not save. But what does serving mean? And this is where my story comes back and becomes your story. In fact, it becomes all of our stories. Let's continue on. In verse 8. To me, Paul, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So you hear that, that emphasis on the multi-ethnic, cross-cultural church. But then he continues in verse 9. Christ has called me to preach the Gentiles and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be, now be made known. Getting excited here. So Paul's job is twofold. Number one, to do what? Preach, proclaim. But number two, to do what? To bring to light the administration of the mystery. What is this administration of the mystery? He clarifies in verse 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church. Through the church. 
And you see, whenever I have friends that say, I love Jesus, but I don't want to have anything to do with the church. I love Jesus, I love God, but I'm tired and I'm done with institutional religion. The thing is, you, you, you almost can't have one without the other. The local church, I still believe, is the hope of the world. The gospel is the hope of the world. But it is, it, it is administered. You hear that word? Minister, administered. The gospel is administered through the church. And I want to camp on this word, administer, because it's so interesting. The word administration, ministration, ministry, administration, the root word here is oikos. Does anybody know what oikos means? It means house. And when it's extrapolated, actually the word that's, the, the literal word, the, the root word is oikos, but the actual word there is oikonomia. So oikonomia, it, it talks about the house, but specifically it translates. You could translate this, this, you could translate this to mean household management. So God has committed to me on the one hand, Paul says, to do what? To preach. And on the second hand, what? Household management of this mystery. Basic household management of this gospel mystery. Because you can't just do the gospel without some organization, without some household management, without some administration. Do you think that I just come up here and just kind of pull a sermon out of my, you know, and just da 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 there? No. Do you think that we meet together and we structure this? After this, we're having a joint LT staff and volunteer leader meeting. Do you think that we just, it gets done? No, there's administrating that goes on in the background. Now listen to this. I'm going to tell you a funny story. When I was in seminary, right, and I'm not trying to convince you to go to seminary. I'm just telling my side, but then I'm going to tell you your side. When I was in seminary, I sat in all these classes, and all of these professors wanted you to not just be proficient, but they expected you to be experts in their particular subject. And so after grueling all those years in seminary and, and all those thousands of dollars and all that time, I had to walk out. The expectation was placed upon me to walk out as an expert in Greek, in Hebrew, in exegesis, which is a language unto itself, in history, in philosophy, in theology. And in learning all of these things, I learned, yes, I learned how to proclaim. I learned the charisma. I learned the preaching. But this other part, the administration, the household management, do you think I came into the church knowing, knowing how to lead staff meetings or to navigate warring personalities on the board? Men, older men of whom I'm scared because I have daddy issues. And then these men are talking to me like I'm this little boy. And how do I manage this and all these different things? And this board is conflicted with this board. And all these people are... Do you think they taught me how to do that? No, they didn't. I didn't know. And I'm still learning. I did not learn management. I did not learn human resources. I did not learn administration. Putting together an annual budget requires some Excel spreadsheet proficiency. I didn't learn that in seminary. But you did. I mean, not in seminary. But you did. You learned Excel. You learned how proper organizations function. I mean, I've heard it before. Sometimes good Christian businesses 
or businesses with ethical practices, really based biblically, they run better, better than churches. Can I get an amen? (laughs) You didn't have to say amen, but there's a point. They know how to do it. The household management. This past week, I'll share with you, um, I flew out to L.A. and sat down at a very intimate circle with some of our, with our denominational leaders. And our new president, John Wenrick, I got to sit in this circle, and he sat with the presidents of each of the ethnic associations, and we talked about the future of the Evangelical Covenant Church. And I want to say to my beloved covenanters that are here, we're on good, 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 solid, solid ground. Really solid, strong ground. I have so much hope. John is, John, President John is, um, he, he's not just a good, sound, biblical leader, but he also has a strong sense of leadership. He reads many leadership books. I mean, the guy's like a walking John Maxwell. Is that right, John Maxwell? Right? And uh, he, he would drop these one-liners from leadership, and, and I'm like, that, he said this one thing that I want you to hear. It was so good. And it applies to what my point is. It applies to my message here. What he said all throughout the week, no one is smarter than everyone. No one is smarter than everyone. And when Pastor Wayne, after he says, I came out of seminary and I learned everything, I'm smarter than everyone, therefore I should lead. No, no, no. Pastor Wayne is not smarter than everyone. In fact, Pastor Wayne should draw back and allow everyone to lead together. You know what's funny? That word oikonomia, that's behind this word administration, there was an ancient philosopher, his name is Aristotle, and he took that word oikonomia and titled his book, Oikonomica. Oikonomica. Economics. Economics. Do you think I should be the one that knows more than everybody that leads this church alone? Oikonomica? Seriously? The administration of the mystery is done better by all of us. All of you, all of you have been around at Woven long enough to own this church just as much as myself. I must, you know, I've said this, I've made, I've taken a vow of stability to this city, to this community. But so can you. You can be committed to this mystery and you can be committed to the ministry of this mystery. How many of you want to take a vow? With me as well. I'm committed to this mystery, to this church, this city, to this place. Because none of us are smarter than all of us. Churches are not built on the shoulders of one man or woman. Churches are built with arms linked together where there is no one person, there is no president, there is no John Wenrick, there is no Wayne, there is together, there's all of us. That's why Tanya is chairing the agenda of our meeting today and not me. (laughs) Rounding third base, sliding towards home. 
there's one last verse to all of this, and I want you to hear this. Therefore, Paul says in verse 13, I ask you not to lose heart and my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. That's a summarizing statement. After all is said and done about this mystery and the ministry of the mystery, don't be sad that I'm suffering. Don't feel bad. I want this. I chose this. Scholars believe that the reason Paul is in prison at this time is because he did the atrocious act of taking a non-Jew, a Greek, into the temple, into the Jewish temple, which is such a, a racial offense. It was, it was so, you, you don't do that, you don't do that. That he was thrown in prison for it. That much he believed in this mystery. That much he poured himself, he trusted, he, he believed, and he administered this mystery. That much that he was thrown in prison for it. I think this tells us two things. It tells us, first of all, that we are the beneficiaries of that. Somebody suffers, but we get to be part of it as well. But the second thing, the ministry of this mystery, it will not be easy. It will have tribulations. It is easier in many regards to just be a church with people like me. But no, we have to do it the hard way. And then do a church with people that are not like me. But that's the mystery. Y'all get it. That's why you're here. You get it. That's the mystery. And therefore, the tribulations that were attendant with Paul's ministry, God forbid, but it may also be yours as well. Two applications that I close out with today. Two fill in the blanks in your notes. The first challenge and the application that I want to leave you with, can you spend some time having a midlife crisis? <laughs> no, what I mean is, can you search your ministry? In the spirit of Second Peter, make every effort to confirm your calling. Can you search out what is my role? What is my place in the community of God? I believe in this mystery with my whole heart. Then what is my ministry? What is my ministry? What is my ministry here? That's the first question, the first challenge, the first fill in the blank. But the second one, the second one, the second application in the fill in the blank, and I want to release you with this, is be activated to administer this mystery. I want you to be activated. I really, really hope that 2019 will be the year that I learn to release a lot more. So number one, search out your ministry. What is your ministry? Number two, be activated to administry, administer this tremendous mystery. How do I, in my little way, in my own way, how do I administer this mystery? I was delighted this morning, and I'm always going to, I'm always going to um, play up my people's successes. I was delighted to walk into the back. I felt a little bit of sinus uh, pressure just before I came up to preach, and I said, I think I need something hot to drink, and I walk, and there's a Keurig there. 
And I said, Anthony, did you, buy, did you bring your Keurig to church? And he said, no, this is, this is the church's. That's how you're administering the mystery. Uh, you know, really. Really. And you create a hospitable environment. Uh, a Keurig goes a long way. Right? May one day we have our own coffee bar. Well, we, are, we have one right here. You know what I mean? I want the real barrister to make the foam latte with the little heart and the arrows shooting through it and everything. This is administering the mystery. <laughs> Let's administer the mystery together. Amen? Let's administer this mystery together. Bow your heads with me. The worship team comes up. I'd like to challenge you to think for a few minutes. How can I administer this mystery? What is my ministry? And by the way, if you've heard me talk long enough, you know that I don't like this sacred-secular divide. I'm not the only one that should be called pastor. I'm not the only one that has to wear that stole, that, that, that glorious scarf thing. All of you are ministers of the gospel. So how do you minister? How do you minister this great, tremendous mystery? Think about it.